This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my conversation with historian John Furling was held in August 2021. Uh, a really fascinating work called Winning Independence by historian John Furling. Uh, he is a prolific writer, uh, and this is uh, this is certainly not new territory for him. He is Professor Emeritus of History at the University of West Georgia. He has authored numerous books, uh, ranging from George Washington, Jefferson, and Hamilton, uh, and on and on. He was a finalist for the 2015 Kirkus Book Prize, uh, and more recently, uh, some other awards indeed. Uh, this is a fascinating and very intense look at winning independence, the decisive years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 to 1781. Looking forward to this one. Uh, John, uh, how are you, my friend? I'm, I'm fine, and uh, thanks for having me, Warner. There has been a proliferation uh, of work done about the Revolutionary War, pre, present, and what happened afterwards. Uh, you are diving deep in a, this is a pretty thick volume here, uh, on three years uh, that you believe were incredibly decisive. And I'm curious as to all the work that you've done, what was it about these particular years that made you feel like, I really want to hone in right on this unique period? Okay, well, there were really two things. Uh, one was that I wrote a book that uh, came out, I believe, in 2011, called just called Independence, and it was a look at uh, the battle over declaring independence and why independence was finally declared when it was declared. So, in a sense, I wanted to write a sequel to that book. Um, that on on the day that independence was declared, a congressman from Rhode Island told the members of Congress, in essence, uh, you, now you've declared independence, but you have to win it. And uh, it took many, many years to actually win independence after July 4th of 1776. So I wanted to write the book in, in part uh, uh, to, as a sequel to that book. But also, I think the the period um, after beginning in 1778, in other words, after the surrender of John Burgoyne's army at Saratoga, it was a British army that had invaded New York and it, it ran into trouble and it surrendered in October of 1777. I think the period that follows that is not as well remembered as the first 30 months of the war. People tend to remember battles like Trenton and Bunker Hill much better than they remember uh, equally significant battles like Cowpens and Guilford Courthouse and whatever that came uh, in, the, in the latter period of the war. And there are probably many reasons uh, why the latter period isn't as well remembered, but I, I think one of the big reasons is that virtually every textbook that's ever been written on American history has described Saratoga as the turning point of the war. 
And I, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't uh, minimize the importance of Saratoga. I mean, the British lost about a third of their their men in America in that surrender, but it, the, it, it also uh, helped to bring France into the war as an American ally. And without the French alliance, America couldn't have won the war. So I don't minimize Saratoga, but I think because it's it's often characterized as a turning point, many people just think that uh, victory was now inevitable, and they they haven't paid that much attention to the period after October 1777. So I wanted to take a look at that and look at it in depth, and, and in fact, I, I wanted to argue and do argue in the book that it became a long, desperate war and, indep- and a victory for the Americans uh, Americans and the French, for that matter, victory was was uh, far from inevitable. In fact, even three years after Saratoga, I think the British were more optimistic than the the Americans were. George George Washington, in a letter that he writes late in 1780, so that's two years after Saratoga, says, "I have almost ceased to hope." that independence can can be attained. So that that was the other reason that I really wanted to delve into this period and take a look at it. Um, and I guess really there's a third third factor too, and that is that more Americans died after 1778 in this war than died previously. I, I think pretty close to two-thirds of all of the Americans who perished uh, in this war died between 1778 and, and 1781. So it took a heavy toll on uh, on the Americans. So for, for all of those reasons, I, I wanted to, to uh, uh, take up this book. Well, some of this uh, focuses intensely uh, on not the relationship with, but the different decisions made, for example, between George Washington uh, on the side of the Continental Army and Sir Henry Clinton on the side of the British. And I'm wondering is when most Americans think of the British command, they're probably thinking of Cornwallis, are they not? And as a, maybe that's not fair, but share with us a little bit about Henry Clinton and, and his thought process and where did he fit in all of this? Sure. Well, Sir Henry Clinton was named, he was actually the third British uh, commander in chief. Uh, Thomas Gage was for just the first few months of the war. Then he was replaced by uh, William Howe, and Howe did not have uh, two very successful years, and he resigned uh, at the end of 1777, and Clinton was chosen as the third commander of the British uh, Army. He, He learns of his appointment in uh, May of 1778, and then he'll remain in command of the British Army down through Yorktown and for a few months uh, beyond that. And he he was a, a professional uh, soldier. He had had uh, sir. He went into the British Army when he was a teenager, and he served in two wars before the Revolutionary War. He was seriously wounded in uh, combat and in a war in Germany in the early 1760s, um, came to America, uh, was sent to America, 
1775. He got here just right after Lexington and Concord, but in time to be part of the Battle of Bunker Hill. And he's here for the for the duration of the war, at least down through through Yorktown. He he had a reputation as being perhaps the best strategist among the British uh, officers in America, but he hasn't had a good reputation among historians. Um, his his biography, the only biography written of him, um, was was written by a professor at the University of Michigan back in the 1950s, I think it was, about 75 years ago. And it wasn't a flattering biography, and he engaged in a lot of psychological, I, I would say psychological mumbo-jumbo, because... Clinton really did not leave any private papers that opens a window onto his personality, but his biographer depicted him uh, as somebody who craved power but was afraid to use power once he got it, and so he he depicted Clinton as a do-nothing general, overly cautious, and and attributed uh, to some degree the British failure. Uh, to to Clinton, and I what I tried to do in my book was take another look at Clinton and reassess him, and uh, I I provide a much more flattering uh, uh, characterization of of Clinton. I think he was not a great general, but he was a good general. Um, he was dealt a bad hand. He, he says, in fact, on the day that he he was appointed commander, he wrote a letter to a friend in England, and he said, my fate is hard. And the reason uh, he said that was that he, while he was ordered to be the commander, he was also ordered to give up 8,000 of his men. So the, the, with France coming into the war, most of those men were going to be sent to the Caribbean to protect British uh, holdings there against the uh, against the French. So he had a much smaller army than his predecessor had had, but with that smaller army, he had to fight not only the Americans but the British. So um, he 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 didn't have a good hand to uh, to start with, and I argue in the book he came much closer uh, than even he thought was capable that he was capable of of doing in uh, gaining something for Britain. I don't argue that that Clinton could have caused the Americans to surrender, but I think the the strategy that he pursued, which uh, was became known as the Southern strategy, was to try to regain control of Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. And uh, if if he could succeed in that, and I argue that he came very close to succeeding in gain, regaining those three colonies if if he had succeeded in doing that then the united states might still have become independent but it would have been a united states of 10 states not 13 states and it would have been completely surrounded by uh, by british territory because britain already had florida they would now have Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. They had everything west of the Appalachian Mountains out to around the Mississippi River, and they had Canada. So the United States would have been small 
it would have been encircled by a great uh, European power, and um, it, it would have faced an uncertain future, and I think a pretty bleak uh, future. So Clinton came pretty close, and um, so I, I, I'm hoping that, or in writing this book, I hope to to reassess Clinton's generalship. If you just joined us, yours truly, Warner Lewis uh, from the flight deck of Lewis at Large. Got a good one going here with historian John Furling, uh, who is also a professor emeritus of history at the University of West Georgia, a prolific author, uh, particularly about those subjects uh, in and around the American Revolution. Got a brand new work called Winning Independence, The Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 to 1781. Let's, John, let's tackle this one. Uh, Seriously, how close were we to losing uh, this thing? And in your opinion, was there a particular singular turning point? And if not, were there a series of turning points that really uh, fell towards uh, the colony's way? Sure. I, well, I think the, uh, the Americans were pretty close to, uh, to losing things. And when 1781, which is the last year, it's the year of Yorktown, when 1781 dawned, Everybody, Clinton on on his side, Washington on his side. Uh, you can read the letters of people like Lafayette and and John Adams, who was an American diplomat in Europe. All of those people thought that 1781 was going to be the last year of the war. Everybody was exhausted. The American economy was was shot. Morale was breaking down uh, in America. Three years had passed since Saratoga. The Americans hadn't gained a significant victory in those three years. The French had been in the war for two years. They hadn't gained a single uh, victory. So um, uh, people here uh, were kind of stumbling toward an end to the war. And um, in in Europe, uh, John Adams was writing from Europe back to Congress and telling them, Look, if if the Allies don't gain a decisive victory in 1781, France is going to drop out of the war. They're tired of it. Their economy is suffering. They want out. So it all hinged on gaining a, a, a decisive victory in 1781, and we know now that the British, or that the the Allies, rather, were able to gain that decisive victory at uh, at Yorktown. And Yorktown, I think, really came about as a result of a couple of decisions that that were made that, that, in essence, tied Clinton's hands. Clinton, at the beginning of 1781, devised a a strategy that I think could have prevented uh, something like Yorktown occurring. That Clinton decided that he was certainly having problems in the South. There was a long partisan, uh, a, a large partisan movement in the South that was causing all kinds of problems for the British Army under uh, the Earl of Cornwallis in South Carolina. 
And also, the Americans just kept running armies into the South. One after another after another would be defeated. And in 1781, they ran their fifth army into the South, and this one was under Nathaniel Green. But Clinton decided that the only way that the American resistance, whether from partisans or from the Continental Army, could continue was uh, if those forces received supplies from the outside. And basically what was happening was the Americans were getting supplies from abroad. They were landing at ports in New England. Then they were coming south down through Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, into Virginia, through Virginia, and into the Carolinas and Georgia. So what Clinton did in 1781 was he put an army of 6,000 men into Virginia to stop the flow of supplies. That, That army was to destroy supply depots and to interdict the flow of supplies on into uh, the lower south. But he never intended to leave that army permanently in Virginia. His idea was the army would stay in Virginia from early in 1781 until about July. Then he would bring the army, or it would bring all but about 2,000 of the 6,000 men to New York because he expected the allies, Washington and and his French ally, to attack New York and try to gain the the decisive victory in 1781 in New York. And Clinton had actually begun to pull troops out of Virginia when he received uh, orders from uh, London telling him not to remove anybody from Virginia. Every man had to stay there. And that intrusiveness wound up leaving a large British army in Virginia, and that, of course, became the Allied target uh, when when they came into the Chesapeake and they caught Cornwallis at Yorktown and and compelled him uh, to surrender. And I I think if they hadn't done that, if there had only been 2,000 men left in Virginia, I think it's questionable whether the Allies would have gone after that army. They might have thought it was so small that it wasn't worth trifling with. They couldn't gain the the decisive victory that they had to gain in order to force Britain out of the war, and they would have been compelled to attack New York instead. And that would have been a much much tougher nut to crack for the for the Allies because the British had held New York for five years. It was heavily fortified, had a much larger army there, and um, that was how close I think the British came to to avoiding this decisive uh, victory at Yorktown. And and had they avoided it, I think what would probably have happened is that there would have been a negotiated uh, settlement, and the diplomats would have sat down. America would probably have gotten independence, but not all, but not with all 13 states. Uh, United States of 10 or 11 uh, states instead, and the future of America would have been very different. You know... Uh, John, as we sort of start to wind down here a little bit, is there 
a long-held uh, belief by Americans and their view of the war that not is not necessarily false, but do we have, are we operating under any major false pretense about overall the overarching uh, sort of the ending of the war and the results and the inevitable or not inevitable, as you would maintain, outcome uh, of this war? Or do we think about the war in its proper terms? Well, I, I think there are a couple of uh, of misconceptions. One I touched on at, at the beginning, and that was the the idea that victory was was um, inevitable after Saratoga, and and certainly I don't think that that is the case. And and also I think there's a general feeling that. Um, that back in the 18th century, there was a great deal more chivalry uh, between the combatants, and that the the Revolutionary War was not a war that that uh, featured atrocities and whatever, as as was true in World War Two and and in many other uh, wars. And I think that that was wrong too. I mean, there there were incidents. I mean, there there was some there was chivalry between the officers, but um, there was also the war was pretty grim, I think, and. Uh, um, there were assorted atrocities, prisoners being massacred, uh, following uh, uh, their their surrender, and and uh, things things of that sort went on during the during the the Revolutionary War. So um, I, I think the way we look at the war was 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 is sometimes uh, uh, flawed, <clears throat> and I think. One other thing is that people don't always realize how costly this this war was. If if my math is correct, uh, the the United States in the Civil War uh, about one in every ten male of military age perished in that war, and in the Revolutionary War. It's it's not quite that large, but it's about one out of every fifteen uh, male of military age. In World War II, it's like one out of every seventy-five American males of military age perish. So it was a much more costly uh, uh, war than a great many people realize today. Well, it is an in-depth, fascinating look uh, at the final years, the decisive years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 to 1781, winning independence by historian, well-known historian and prolific historian John Furling. Uh, John, before we get out of here, uh, uh, this is a, a big-time book. Uh, how do people get a copy? I think we probably know, but share with us that. And also, you've done a lot of work uh, on the history of the Revolutionary War, and uh, how can people find out more about it? Sure. Uh, the, uh, the the book is available, should be available in, in most bookstores and online through things like Amazon and, and Barnes and & Noble and, and whatever. So it's a readily available uh, book. And uh, you can also go to my website. I, I just uh, look up johnferling.com 
and uh, the first thing that'll come up will, or one of the first things that'll say home, and just click on home, and there's information on my website about me and and the other books that uh, that I've I've written. And uh, so that that would be the the easiest way to get the book, and also to to learn what I've done and and learn something about uh, about me. Well, listen, uh, really appreciate uh, your time and your thoughts here and observations about this, and uh, best of luck with this. And as always, uh, the next uh, piece that you've got out, we would certainly like to learn more about and have you back on again. Okay, well, I look forward to it. You bet. Hey, we will be back with more right after this on Lewis at Large. John, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Okay, well, I, I certainly appreciate you having me. You got it. Take care, You my have friend. a good day. You okay. Too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week, and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis one at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.